Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, and suicide. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. As we mentioned last time, Glenn's name has been pronounced a number of different ways in coverage about her and her father. In these episodes, we're using the pronunciation used by her family members. November 5th, 1991. The headlines read, Robert Maxwell, dead in sea. The eccentric billionaire had disappeared from his 14 million pound yacht, the Lady Galen. Robert was last seen on the deck just before dawn. Hours later, the crew members realized he was missing. They notified the authorities immediately. After an intense manhunt lasting six hours, his body was found floating in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. The next day, reporters swarmed to the Canary Islands where the boat was anchored. They hoped to capture a picture of the mourning Maxwell family who'd temporarily taken up residence on the yacht. But it wasn't until the day after Robert's body was retrieved that someone finally approached the ship railing to face the journalists. It was Robert's youngest daughter and the boat's namesake, 29-year-old Galen. Galen held up her hand, summoning silence. She answered a few of the reporters' inquiries, then thanked them before turning to leave. As she did, a reporter shattered out a final question, one that had been on everyone's mind. How did your father die? Galen paused before turning back to face the media circus. Everyone awaited her response on bated breath when finally she replied, I think he was murdered. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the controversial newspaper mogul Robert Maxwell. His body was found in the Atlantic Ocean in 1991, just as news of his financial scandals was set to break. Last time, we covered the scope of Robert's life. Despite his humble origins, he built a publishing empire worth a billion dollars. Shortly after his death, it was discovered he'd stolen millions from his employees' pension funds. In this episode, we'll dig into three conspiracy theories behind Robert's death. First, we'll explore the possibility that he was killed by the crew of the Lady Golen. Then we'll gauge whether Israeli assassins were responsible for his demise. Finally, we'll consider if Robert's death was simply an accident brought on by his ailing health. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On November 5th, 1991, newspaper mogul Robert Maxwell's body was found in the Atlantic Ocean. Within weeks, headlines announced his media empire was crumbling and that he'd stolen millions from his employees' pension fund. With this news breaking on the heels of Robert's death, many suspected foul play. Betty, the late mogul's wife, was no exception. In fact, she wondered if the last people who saw him might have played a role. This brings us to our first conspiracy theory that crew members of the Lady Golen may have been involved in Robert Maxwell's death. A lot of what we know about this theory comes from John Preston's biography of Robert Maxwell, Fall. Allegedly, Betty hopped on a private jet as soon as she learned her husband was missing. Before she even touched down in the Canary Islands, Robert's body was found. After connecting with authorities, Betty went to the Lady Golen. On board, Mrs. Maxwell didn't recognize any of the crew members. Even Gus Rankin, the captain, was a stranger to her, which was quite unusual. She always knew at least some members of the yacht's crew. Things got even stranger once she heard Rankin's claims about Robert. According to the captain, he spoke about the late mogul like they were close friends. To Betty, that didn't sound like Robert, at least not the version she knew. Her husband hated small talk. He wasn't very close with anyone. She couldn't imagine him chumming it up with Rankin. The Spanish authorities didn't seem to share Betty's suspicions. Supposedly, they finished investigating the yacht and its crew members before Betty arrived and cleared them of any suspicion. But the widow couldn't shake the feeling that something was amiss. Before diving in further, it might be helpful to go over the timeline of Robert's final days. He flew from London down to Gibraltar on the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, where he boarded the Lady Galen on November 1st, 1991. 
The ship was scheduled to sail down the coast toward the Canary Islands. From there, it would cross the Atlantic with New York City as its final destination. On the night of November 4th, 1991, Robert was reportedly in good spirits. After spending the last day or so in Madeira, Portugal, he stopped off on the island of Santa Cruz de Tenerife for dinner. Later, he returned to the boat and made a few calls, including one to his son Ian, before retiring to bed after midnight. According to Rankin, Robert asked the captain to cruise overnight rather than stay docked. At 4.10 a.m., a crew member named Graham Leonard ran into Robert, standing alone on the deck. The mogul seemed restless and asked if Leonard could turn on the air conditioner in his cabin. At 4.45 a.m., Robert went back to complain his room was now too cold. A crew member turned the air conditioner off and no one heard from him again. By 9.30 a.m., the ship had anchored in the bay coast of the Canary Islands near Tenerife. After a call to Maxwell's room went unanswered, the captain entered the mogul's cabin. That's when he realized the billionaire was missing. The authorities were promptly alerted. The Spanish National Rescue Service combed the waters for hours. Finally, at around 6 p.m., Robert's body was found about 20 miles northwest of Grand Canary Island. Meanwhile, back in England, news of Robert's financial troubles was soon to hit newsstands. In the coming weeks, several banks went public about his failure to repay the huge loans they'd offered. The papers also claimed the magnate had misplaced millions of dollars in pension funds. Pension fund managers quickly realized Robert apparently put that money into his private companies without due authority. The timing of the mogul's death seemed almost too convenient. Many wondered if Maxwell may have died by suicide. But for Betty and other members of Maxwell's family, that didn't seem likely. They felt if Robert had died by suicide, he might have left behind a note. Betty spoke to the head of the Spanish search party, Jesus Fernandez Vaca, probably looking to confirm her suspicions. Based on his estimation, Vaca estimated Robert's body had been in the water roughly 12 hours before he was retrieved. If we take into account when he was last seen alive, that implied Robert could have gone overboard sometime around 6 a.m. But Vaca shared something else with Betty. Unfortunately, he'd pulled many bodies from the water throughout his career. And he noticed when people who drowned were airlifted by a chopper, they typically expelled a lot of water from their lungs. Only, he claimed, Robert hadn't. To Vaca, this was evidence the mogul hadn't drowned. Instead, it appeared he could have died before hitting the water. Vaca's claims fueled Betty's uncertainty. She thought back to Captain Rankin's depiction of her husband, how he'd insisted Robert was a pleasant passenger, even a close friend. This simply didn't add up to her. Robert was famously unfriendly and demanding of his staff. Perhaps Robert had abused the captain and crew so much, they decided to take matters into their own hands by pushing him into the Atlantic. Betty went back to Captain Rankin and demanded he account for his whereabouts while Robert was on board. According to Betty, 
Rankin informed her he'd gone up to the bridge around 6.30 a.m. and hadn't noticed anything strange. But Betty pressed on. Why had it taken Rankin nearly six hours to realize Robert was missing? The captain had a simple explanation. He assumed the boss was sleeping in. Both doors to his stateroom were locked, so the crew thought it best not to disturb him. It wasn't until 11 a.m. when Robert failed to answer his phone, they suspected something was amiss. And once they did, they wasted no time contacting the authorities and his family members. Betty tried to call Rankin on what she saw as his bluff. She asked Rankin if it was an accident and her husband had slipped and fell. Where exactly did it happen? After all, the boat's deck railings were decently high. But Rankin could only guess. He had no idea. Even stranger, Rankin mostly seemed concerned about his own future, at least to Betty. He asked Betty about his job and whether they should continue sailing toward New York or if they should go back to the ship's home port. Most importantly, he wondered, did she plan on selling the yacht? Which makes me wonder, if Rankin and his crew were so worried about their jobs on board the Lady Galen, would they have really put their careers in jeopardy by killing their boss? No matter how insufferable the billionaire was, it just seems like a ridiculous notion. It appears Betty was just in shock and looking for someone to blame. But what if there was something in it for them? Robert had plenty of enemies. Maybe someone paid the crew to get rid of him. Betty did say they were all fresh faces. That's reasonable. But when you start looking at the facts, that theory falls apart. Because no one aboard the Lady Galen knew Robert was coming until the night before he arrived. His visit was so abrupt, the crew didn't even have time to stock up on extra food. Okay, so it doesn't seem like the crew had a solid motive for killing Robert. And they certainly didn't have time to plot something out. So perhaps Betty's unease was less about the crew and more about the fact that her husband of 48 years was gone. Regardless, I'd say a hunch isn't enough to allege foul play. I agree. There's no way the crew of that ship intended to harm Robert Maxwell. Besides, if Betty had doubts after questioning Rankin, the results of the autopsy hopefully settled them. Because, well, at least according to the Spanish pathologists, there were no clear signs of a struggle. But this is where things get interesting. Because buried in that report was one tiny detail overlooked by almost everyone. And it had the potential to turn the entire investigation and everything people thought they knew about Robert Maxwell upside down. Coming up, the possibility that Robert Maxwell was an Israeli spy. Listeners, in honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, Parcast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then, on Solved Murders, discover three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. 
The Solved Murders Special, The Missing Dead, starts May 17th. Follow Disappearances and Solved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free, only on Spotify. Now back to the story. After Robert Maxwell's death in 1991, it seemed everyone had a theory about the cause. Some people claimed the mogul had taken his own life. His wife, Betty, briefly suspected that Lady Galen's crew members were responsible. But without any concrete evidence, she focused on the task at hand, burying her husband. In 1988, Robert had secured a burial plot on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. After all, he was Jewish and was seen as an important figure in Israel. His stature actually helped him secure that prominent gravesite. But it's these details that bring us to our second conspiracy theory today, that Robert Maxwell was assassinated by Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad. Dr. Maria Ramos had conducted autopsies before, but this was different. For one thing, the subject was billionaire Robert Maxwell, News of his death graced nearly every newspaper on earth, so the world was waiting on bated breath for her results. But that wasn't even the most stressful part. Robert's wife had already made arrangements to fly her husband's body to its resting site in Jerusalem. But before the body could be transported out of the Canary Islands, the Spanish authorities needed Dr. Ramos's pathology report. So Betty pleaded to get the autopsy conducted quickly. That's because for religious purposes, Jewish people should be buried as soon as possible after their death. Robert died on a Tuesday and Betty wanted him to be laid to rest by Sunday. There was just one problem. Because of the Jewish Sabbath, bodies couldn't be admitted into Israel after sunset on Friday. That meant Robert's body had to be on a plane by Thursday evening at the latest but his remains had only just reached Dr. Ramos on Wednesday. She barely had 24 hours to get the job done. It's worth mentioning that, thanks in part to the Spanish bureaucracy on the island, a process like this would take a week. But Betty Maxwell pushed hard. Her husband needed to be on that plane tomorrow. Adding more pressure to Dr. Ramos and her team's already difficult task A crowd of reporters had gathered outside the morgue while she examined Robert's body. They snapped away, their flashbulbs lighting up the building. But the distractions faded away once Dr. Ramos noticed something strange on the mogul's body. A tiny spot behind Robert's right ear. It looked like a puncture mark. Ramos notified the supervising doctor If it was a mosquito bite, the mark would have been red, but it wasn't. And because the mark was so small, a standard test couldn't definitively prove what caused the puncture. So the supervising doctor suggested they move on. The clock was ticking after all. Before we get any further down that road, let's examine Robert Maxwell's relationship with Israel, which had actually started not too long before his death back in 1984. For decades, Robert had been estranged from his Jewish faith. But in 1984, Gerald Ronson, a business associate, invited him to Israel to meet the prime minister. Robert accepted. Not only did he accept, 
He found the visit transformational. During his meeting with Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, he announced he wanted to invest in the Israeli economy. When asked how much, he reportedly said at least a quarter of a billion dollars. Despite his track record, Robert followed through. He would quickly become a top investor in the Israeli economy. Israeli citizens even put bumper stickers on their cars reading, Please, Mr. Maxwell, buy me. Because Maxwell was so prominent, he developed close relationships with leaders, not just in Israel, but in other countries as well, like the Soviet Union. In fact, Robert's relationship with the Soviet Union dated back even further to the 1950s. That's when he founded Pergamon Press and brokered a deal to publish Soviet scientific journals. Over the years, he'd continued growing his connections there. By the late 80s, former President Mikhail Gorbachev was calling Robert annually to wish him a happy birthday. Despite the warm relations, all was not well. In the late 1980s, the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse, and governments around the world could feel the tremors, particularly Israel. Since its founding in 1948, Israel had been helping Jews evacuate from countries undergoing political upheaval, particularly out of fear of genocide or ethnic cleansing. But as the Soviet Union teetered toward a breaking point, they shut down its borders, keeping citizens from fleeing the country. This included the nation's substantial Jewish population. Israel watched the impending disaster and decided something must be done about the Jews trapped in the USSR. But there was a problem. The Soviets had broken off diplomatic relations with Israel back in 1967. As a result, Israel had no inroads to negotiate with them. But what if Israel and the Soviet Union had a powerful ally in common? Like, say, Robert Maxwell. Now, before we get too deep into this theory, we want to preface it by saying the majority of the context comes from a book by author Gordon Thomas and terrorism expert Martin Dillon. It's called Robert Maxwell, Israel's Super Spy, and to be honest, you might want to take it with a grain of salt or two. That's because Thomas has been known to seed some pretty radical conspiracy theories involving the Mossad in the past. Like the idea that Monica Lewinsky had entrapped Clinton after being recruited by the Mossad. And that Princess Diana's death might have been tied to them too. But in the spirit of giving you all the information we have on this theory, here it is. According to their sources, Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad, reached out to Robert to carry out the mission. Allegedly, they asked if he could help bring home the Soviet Union's Jewish population. But that wasn't all. As we mentioned, Robert Maxwell was a very well-connected man. He boasted he could arrange private meetings with prime ministers, kings, even dictators. He also had experience in intelligence work from his time at war. With him on their side, the Mossad could hypothetically gain access to powerful secrets which may be why the agency reportedly asked Robert to assist them as an asset. And according to Thomas and Dylan, Maxwell agreed. The authors also claimed Robert worked as an informant for the Mossad for the next several years. 
With his involvement, thousands of Soviet Jews were said to have emigrated to Israel. At first, it appeared the alleged plan was going well. But the author said the power balance between Robert and his secret allies may have shifted. By 1991, it was no secret that Robert's business empire was on shaky ground. He'd done everything he could to keep it afloat, including taking out billions of dollars worth of loans from banks worldwide. Now, many of those institutions were demanding Maxwell pay back his debts or risk defaulting. Maybe Robert grew desperate, and in that supposed desperation, Thomas and Dylan's sources say he went so far as to allegedly blackmail the Mossad. If it's true, it's an incredibly brash move, but not out of character for the egomaniac that was Robert Maxwell. Thomas and Dylan's book claimed if the agency didn't get Maxwell the money, he'd reveal his work for them to the world. At first, the Mossad possibly thought Robert was bluffing, but the mogul didn't let up. Supposedly, he came to collect for the intelligence work he'd done. The Mossad wouldn't have liked getting backed into a corner by their own asset. So, according to the theory, there was only one thing left to do. Kill Robert Maxwell. There's said to be a secretive elite unit within the Mossad known as the Kidon. It's believed the Kidon's responsible, when necessary, for doing the organization's dirtiest work. Like assassinations. They were experts at eliminating their targets. One of their weapons of choice was thought to be poison. More specifically, a synthetic nerve agent possibly injected behind a subject's ear. Which brings us back to that curious puncture mark. Thomas and Dylan claimed to interview several Mossad agents. To initiate the assassination, they allegedly told Robert they'd get him the money he needed. All he had to do was fly to Gibraltar and board the Lady Galen. Once the vessel set sail, he was given explicit instructions. Come up to the yacht bridge between 4 and 5 a.m. on the morning of November 5th. Alone. When crew member Graham Leonard saw Robert on the deck at 4.10 a.m., the mogul complained about his room temperature. But perhaps that was to get Leonard to leave. From there, things moved quickly. Allegedly, two wetsuit-clad Kidon agents approached the vessel on a dinghy. They slipped aboard the Lady Galen, and instead of giving Robert a sack of cash, they plunged a needle into his neck. Then... They threw him into the Atlantic and slipped away unnoticed. Of course, this is just a hypothetical scenario. Robert's ties to the Mossad have never been proven, but there has been extensive speculation, most prominently addressed by author Seymour M. Hirsch in his book, The Samson Option. Published weeks before Robert's death, the book claimed the billionaire had worked with the Mossad as an arms dealer, Robert vehemently denied the allegations and filed a libel lawsuit against the author, which was dropped after his death. Israeli officials also rebuked these claims and denied any connection between Robert Maxwell and the Mossad. Interestingly, this theory would account for why Robert left town suddenly to board the Lady Galen in Gibraltar. It would also explain his good mood aboard the ship and why he didn't seem concerned when the debtors came calling. 
but that's not all. Following the tragedy, reports emerged of a mysterious vessel following the Lady Galen as it sailed along the coast of the Canary Islands. Thomas and Dylan's sources believe this ship was used by the Kidon to launch their dinghy. Others, like Captain Rankin, rejected the idea that a boat could have gotten close enough to the Lady Galen without them noticing. In an interview, Captain Rankin claimed the yacht had a radar system that alerted him when a vessel got within five miles. But Thomas and Dylan countered by saying the Kidon had equipment capable of scrambling that radar system easily. Overall, I'd say the biggest argument against this theory boils down to its source. Most of the information in Thomas and Dylan's book does come from a former military intelligence officer. But critics of their book dismiss him as a guy with a grudge against the Mossad ever since he was caught selling military-grade weapons. Thomas himself has a history of tenuously connecting famous scandals and historical deaths to the Mossad. One Washington Post article cited his book saying there was, quote, no evidence, no credible sourcing, and no logic. I'll admit, I was intrigued by this theory until I heard this. After Robert's body was flown into Jerusalem, the Israeli government sent a guard of military jets to escort him to his final destination. If Maxwell had blackmailed the Mossad, I doubt he'd have received such a hero's welcome. To me, that alone kind of debunks this theory, but it still leaves behind a significant piece of evidence. The puncture wound behind Robert's ear. Well, as it turns out, even that mark's existence is up for debate, all thanks to a second autopsy, one that revealed shocking new details the first one seemed to miss. Coming up, a second autopsy paints a clear picture of Maxwell's final moments. Now back to the story. Upon reviewing the results of the initial autopsy, Robert Maxwell's insurance company expressed some concerns. Based on their assessment, the procedure had been rushed and bungled. To pay out the 20 million pound policy, the insurance company demanded a second, more conclusive post-mortem. They were looking for evidence that would prove our third and final conspiracy theory, that Robert Maxwell's death was merely the result of a terrible accident. It was Saturday evening on November 9th, 1991. Maxwell's body had made it to Jerusalem just in time. A seasoned pathologist named Dr. Ian West was set to perform the second autopsy. He claimed it was one of the more unpleasant procedures he'd conducted in his career. To start, there was the state of the body. The first autopsy had been so rushed Robert's corpse hadn't even been closed properly. The body was held together by several ropes and numerous organs were missing. Even though the conditions weren't ideal, West was a professional. He soldiered on, determined to get to the bottom of Maxwell's death. And one of the first steps was looking for that puncture mark behind Maxwell's right ear. But try as he might, West couldn't find it. He did, however, discover something the first autopsy had missed. The muscle on Robert's left shoulder was badly torn. From West's estimation, the injury had to have happened before Maxwell hit the water. 
It was a detail that would prove to be a crucial piece of evidence. But before we get into why, let's go back in time a little bit to Robert Maxwell's final days. For months, Robert's health had been in severe decline. He was stressed and couldn't sleep more than two hours at a time. When he did doze off, it was at the most inappropriate times, like in the middle of business meetings. Robert sought to relieve his stress by indulging in junk food and Chinese takeout. It got so bad, the house staff tried putting a padlock on the pantry to stop him from binge eating, to no avail. In August 1991, Robert showed up at a house party Betty was hosting in the south of France. Betty, who hadn't seen her husband in two months, was shocked by the sight of him. Robert had put on a lot of weight in a short amount of time. He was sweating profusely and breathing heavily. It seemed he'd aged a decade. One of the guests at the party, a heart and lung doctor, told Mrs. Maxwell her husband should seek treatment immediately. The Maxwell children also noticed a change in their father. His daughter Christine believed his brain wasn't getting enough oxygen. After all, he only had one good lung after his cancer scare years prior. Professionally, things were declining for Maxwell too. Robert's companies were hanging on by a thread. The banks had come calling, demanding he pay back his loans. Then, one of Maxwell's newspapers, the Daily Mirror, discovered a discrepancy in their books. The company's pension fund, which Maxwell managed, seemed to be more than 38 million pounds short. Turns out, Maxwell had been borrowing from the fund to prop up his other businesses. An internal audit committee set a time with Robert to discuss the missing funds. The meeting was set for November 5th, the same day the banks were threatening to go public with the news of his unpaid loans. The world, it seemed, had finally backed the magnate into a corner, and it didn't look like he was going to get himself out of it this time. What many didn't know about Maxwell was he had an arguably bigger stressor in his life, a young woman in her mid-twenties named Andrea Martin. Robert had hired Andrea to be his personal assistant back in 1988. Since then, she'd made herself indispensable, taking care of almost everything in the mogul's life. Andrea viewed Robert strictly as a boss. However, his feelings for her grew into an obsession. According to Robert's close friend, Nick Davies, who would later wed Andrea. According to Davies' account, Robert showered her with gifts, even buying her a car for her 26th birthday. As his feelings intensified, he became increasingly jealous, and that morphed into full-blown paranoia. Davies suspected Robert hired a team of private eyes to follow Andrea around. He bugged her work phone to listen in on her conversations. Allegedly, he even considered buying the flat next to hers and having cameras installed. One day, while listening in on one of Andrea's phone calls, Robert overheard something he'd been dreading. He thought it sounded like she was speaking provocatively with Nick Davies, the married editor of one of Robert's papers, and he believed the two were having an affair. Robert was crushed, and he couldn't let it go. Robert confronted her about Davies while they were on a business trip in Moscow. 
Andrea denied the affair. But then, Robert did the unthinkable. According to Davies, one morning Robert walked into Andrea's hotel room unannounced and tried to force himself on her. Supposedly, Andrea pushed Robert off and told him to get out. He apologized and asked her to marry him. But she wasn't having any of it. Andrea later handed in her resignation. In the years since she resigned, Andrea has attested that her relationship with Robert Maxwell was strictly professional. So by early November 1991, Robert Maxwell's heart, weakened by physical and emotional stress, was a ticking time bomb. Which, believe it or not, brings us back to the tear in Maxwell's shoulder. When Robert's body was discovered, both his arms were extended above his head. His hands were clenched, as though he'd been trying to grasp something. Dr. West took this, plus the muscle tear, into consideration. From there, he started to form what he believed was a likely scenario. A close friend of Maxwell's admitted the mogul often got up in the night to urinate off the side of the ship. And West theorized that Maxwell may have suffered a heart attack aboard the Lady Galen, perhaps during one of these bathroom breaks. From there, he suspected the mogul may have lost his balance and fallen over the railings. He may have even tried to grab onto those banisters in a last-ditch effort to save himself. As he dangled helplessly from the side of his luxury yacht, Robert's considerable weight would have pulled him down. Robert probably tried to hang on for as long as he could and likely tore his shoulder in the process. But the pain may have been too much. Eventually, his grip gave and he fell into the ocean. After the second autopsy, Dr. West concluded Robert's most probable cause of death was accidental drowning. But you have to admit, the timing was suspicious, especially considering all the news breaking globally about Maxwell's transgressions. Plus, what about the claims from Jesus Fernandez Vaca, the member of the Spanish search party? Remember he said there were usually buckets of water that poured from a body once it was retrieved after drowning, but he claimed this didn't happen with Robert. You're right, it isn't a perfect fit, but I'm more inclined to go with Dr. West's assessment here. I know it's not quite as exciting as the others, but it does check a lot of the boxes. You know what they say, the simplest explanation is often the most likely. Plus, Robert Maxwell seemed to be a scrappy guy, a fighter. It makes sense that he'd try to hold on to the side of the boat for as long as he could. In my opinion, this theory fits the bill best. Exactly. And while we'll never know for sure what was going through his mind on that dark November morning, we can assume this. Robert Maxwell had a lot of secrets, mysteries that prevailed as part of his legacy and seemed to continue even after he was gone. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Of the many sources we used, we found John Preston's fall to be helpful in our research. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. 
And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Wendelin Sobroso and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.